Hi guys, just a heads up before we head into this interview that it is a long one and we talk about some heavy stuff, but we want you guys to know that this might be the type of episode where you take a couple breaks. This might be the episode that you send to your partner talking about what would happen in case we die is a topic that might take a while for you to process, but we thought that this episode was really important. We know that this is something that a lot of people are going to have to go through and thinking about the future is something that we think was worth having an episode on. So that said, we really hope that you enjoy this interview with Eric, the guy that was in charge of helping me plan my future. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we are here with one of my lawyers, Eric Christofferson. Eric is a managing partner at Grams and Christofferson, a firm that specializes in estate and business here in Madison, Wisconsin, and the surrounding areas. Drew and I just finished our estate planning with Eric, and through the process, I learned so much. I knew that Eric would be the perfect person to bring on to the podcast in order to help other people. And I know this is a hard topic to cover because, of course, we're all hoping that we're here for a long time, but I also know that this is important. So, Eric, I would love it if you started by introducing yourself to our listeners and letting us know how you landed in the estate planning sector of law. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I'm really glad to be here. And in terms of Introducing myself, I you know have to talk about my family. Of course, I live here in Wanakee with my wife Eve. We've been married for 13 years, and my daughters Lily and Emma, who are seven years old and 10 years old. So I'm surrounded by a lot of feminine energy always at home. <laughs> so that's something that I have a passion for is you know empowering women because you know looking at my own young daughters and being a girl dad, want them to grow up in a world where they'll be able to make tough decisions and be in charge of things. And that's you know really what I hope for for them. You know, in, in terms of my business too, we are a woman-owned company. My partner, Bailey, we're co-owners in the firm. And so we're also a woman-owned law firm, which is something I'm proud of also. And so um, you know, really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast here. And then I think the other, you know, biggest reason why it's important for me and for this message to get out to groups like this is specifically because, and you know, some people may or may not know this, women are the largest drivers in estate planning decisions for their families. So, you know, in this day and age, we probably see like financial decisions are, you know, split and both couple is involved, or, you know, maybe the man is more involved in that because he feels you know, strength and aptitude in that area. But estate planning is largely an area that not a lot of people have aptitude in just because it's really unknown. And so then I think sometimes men shy away from that. And it ends up being that the women actually are the drivers to get their families to make this decision and get this process started for their family. 
I'm learning so much already. This is so interesting. And we were talking right before we jumped on that Eric is our first male to be on besides our husbands. And we just know that you speak on this topic so well and in a way that's inviting. Because like you just said, not many people have the background in this information. So let's get started here because we know there's a lot of people that are listening right now that are in all different phases of this process. And we know that because we've talked with our community. We've even talked with our friends and people aren't just, you know, talking about estate planning all of the time. So who needs a will? Like, let's just start with the very, very basics. And what should be included inside of this will when we get them started? Yeah, great question. So yeah, I mean, I can completely relate to what you're saying about, you know, there's not a lot of good information out there. Where do you go to get this information? And so that's something that I'm really glad to be here to share today. And in terms of who needs a will, you can say everyone needs a will, but really, you know, the specific targeted group of people that really should have a will, it's based on two things. It's based on your family situation and it's based on your assets. And so when I say family situation, the one really big thing is anyone who has children should definitely have a will. And the reason for that is in your will, you actually provide for guardianship for your children. Basically say, who would take care of my kids and be that parenting role if I'm not able to? And that's obviously extremely critical for any parent, regardless of your, your assets. And then other people, you know, even if you're single or a couple, you know, if you do have more significant assets and want to have a say in what happens to those assets and where they should go if something were to happen to you, then it's also important to do that. But yeah, really, definitely parents are the big group of people that we, we really target as young families and saying, look, as a young family, you really need to have a will to set up the guardianship, as I just mentioned, but also to another thing that people sometimes don't know about is setting up a trust. And there's different types of trust and different ways they can be set up. But the common trust that we'd set up for a young family is actually a trust inside of their will. So it's something where you can basically say, here's the person who would be in charge of the money for my kids. And here's the ages that the kids should receive their inheritance. And those sorts of things can all be spelled out. Because in absence of that, there's no direction on who should manage the money, meaning the kids, you know, receive it at 18. And there's no direction on, you know, what it should be used for and what those you know goals and priorities are for your children. So that's something that really ties in with the guardianship piece. And it can be the same person as your guardian. It can be a different person, but it's really critical to identify those positions of guardian and trustee and then lay out, you know, how you'd like them to interact for the betterment of your kids if you weren't able to do that. Okay. So anyone that has kids and then major assets, so like a house or a good amount of cash? Yeah, exactly. So when we're talking assets, you know, real estate would definitely qualify and, you know, homeowners who've built up some home equity, you know, there is value there to pass on as well as, you know, just investment accounts, even stuff like IRAs, 401ks. And then the other big thing that we strongly encourage our young families to have is life insurance. Even if it's just Mm -hmm. a term insurance policy, it can be very inexpensive and it can be something that can be really critical as part of your estate planning process to make sure that, you know, while you're still in the wealth building phase and maybe haven't built up wealth yet, something to make sure that, hey, even though I don't have that wealth yet, I want to know that if something happens to me, my kids are still going to be taken care of. And life insurance can really fill in that void and can do so, you know, very cheaply and inexpensively for a young family with the term insurance policy. One question that came in a few times is, does an online website like LegalZoom cut it? Some of our listeners feel like, you know what? I don't own a house. I don't have that many assets. Is that a situation where they could use a template on a website? 
So LegalZoom is nice in terms of its accessibility, but what it's not nice in terms of is a few other factors that I generally encourage people if you can afford to hire an attorney or even if you have to save up and have this be a major expense for your family, in the end, it's going to be worth it. Because the biggest thing with a website like LegalZoom, there's three things that I recommend, why I recommend working with a competent local attorney who specializes in estate planning rather than a website. The first is is there's no support when you use a website. So the whole point of setting up this plan is as a contingency for what do I do if something happens to me and what's going to happen with my family and who's going to take care of them? Well, the whole point with that is wouldn't it be nice to have a good local organization and people that I know that my family can go to. And obviously, that's what a law firm specializing in estate planning brings to the table is you have that established relationship. Your family has someone that they can go to. And that is leaps and bounds better than you know a tech support number or an email address where it's you have a person that you can talk to that knows what the plan was because they were the one who set it up in the first place. So that's huge in terms of if the plan actually ever worse have to be executed, you know, that legal Zoom paper in your drawer is not going to do any of that for you. The other thing I see that sometimes can be an issue with legal Zoom is just the fact of I've seen people do legal Zoom and not even have a valid will because they didn't know what the legal formalities were to execute a will. And those are all nuanced and vary from state to state. But, you know, for example, in Wisconsin, your will has to be witnessed by two adult individuals who are not related to you. They have to watch you sign and then they have to both sign themselves. So unless you invited a couple friends over and did this with them, And, you know, usually we oftentimes see people who are doing this legal Zoom or doing it privately and doing it quickly and saying, oh, I'm going on a trip. Let's quick do this, sign it, put it in the drawer. Well, they don't even have a valid will. And I always encourage people too. there's also a big difference between a valid will and a good will in terms of are the provisions in the will actually accomplishing what you want them to accomplish. Valid is just your threshold to clear to say, is this even going to be legally recognized? And then beyond that, the threshold of is this a good plan? Does it actually reflect my wishes properly? And that kind of ties into the third thing, which is with legal Zoom, you're not going to receive any personal advisement on your assets and how those should be positioned within your legal plan. And this is a thing we see with all age groups, whether it's young families or retirees, anyone who's doing their legal planning is critical to actually coordinate their assets within their legal plan. So to give you an example of what I mean by this, If you set up a will, even if you do exactly what I described and you set up the guardian for your kids, you set up that nice trust in your will and say what ages your kids should receive their inheritance and who should take care of it for them, and you do a great job of spelling that all out. If you have your beneficiaries named the wrong way, you can actually end up completely bypassing that plan. So what a lot of people don't realize is they'll have their kids named as beneficiary. And if you have your kids named, that really means my children receive it 100% at 18. And so that bypasses the whole trust that you created in your will. And so you actually want to name that trust as the beneficiary or, you know, more simply just name your estate as the beneficiary. And then that will make sure that those assets do actually flow through the will into the trust you created. And then that way the provisions of the trust will control rather than the beneficiary designation that could potentially override it. So there's a lot of nuances and things like that, that you're simply not going to get that level of education with legal zoom. And, you know, even with some attorneys who don't specialize in this, you're not going to receive that level of advisement as part of the process. 
Yeah, I know that's one thing that made me feel good about this planning process is the idea of if Drew and I did die, the fact that, you know, my brother-in-law and my best friend, my sister-in-law would be sitting there with you and you could walk them through exactly what was going to happen and exactly what we had laid out felt really good. It sounds like the other point is if that's a direction that our listeners still are going to take to make sure you do those finishing steps of making sure it's signed by two people or whatever needs to happen in your state. Otherwise, it's just kind of a boring exercise that you completed and it's not going to be valid. So make sure that you're at least doing the finishing touches that you have to do. So Eric, as you know, as you're a dad, a lot of people in our community do have kids, and that's one reason they're tuning in today. So one question that came through is what are the minimum things, the bare minimum things that you should have in place if you do have kids? Yeah, great question. And it's really the bare minimum is those two things I just mentioned in terms of for the kids. Bare minimum, you want to have that will that spells out two things, that spells out the guardianship and that spells out the trustee. Now that's bare minimum. You also want to have for yourselves as even as a young couple, you want to have what we call advanced directives or financial and healthcare powers of attorney. And why those are so critical, you know, especially for parents is those documents actually plan for if you experience an accident, injury or illness, and you're unable to manage your own finances or make medical decisions for yourself, and consequently, in those situations, also likely be unable to take care of your kids and you know use your money to support your kids and take care of them in that parental role. So having a plan, the will and the trust are going to cover if you pass away. There's also some important legal documents that you want to have for what we call incapacity. Usually for young people, we say, you know, accident, injury, illness, really important to have those as well. And then maybe a little more insight on that trust inside the will and what that is and how that works, because I get asked about that a lot. And basically, this is where you first off have to decide, is your guardian and your trustee going to be the same person or different people? And so that's a big decision point, because if they're the same person, you know, the pros is there's no checks and balances that that one person just has full unfettered access to all of your funds and can use them for whatever they feel is appropriate for your kids. So that's good in the sense that it's very easy and you know presumably you have utmost trust in this person to take care of your kids and so that way it's like okay you have access to everything you're in charge of everything. You know there's some cons to that too of course is number 1 they're in charge of everything. They're trying to take care of, you know, maybe a couple kids on top of the couple kids they already have and then you're asking them to manage these assets which could end up being fairly significant when you add in your equity in your home, all your retirement accounts and if you do have those life insurance policies on yourself and your spouse, you know, two big life insurance policies. So it's going to be a pretty big pool of assets there that you're then also having that person take responsibility for investment, management, distributions, all of that. And so some people like the idea of just, number one, dividing the tasks so that you do have one person who may be more adept at managing finances and then they can fill that role. And then one person that is you know more caring and can fill the role of taking care of the kids. So that's the division of tasks is one pro to that. And then the other big advantage is that checks and balances. Some people do 
value that depending on the situation, just saying, hey, I like the idea of knowing that there's two sets of eyes on this and that there actually is going to be a conversation of, okay, how much should we spend on this given major expenditure? You know, I always tell people the way we set this up is if you do have a trust, you set a monthly budget and make sure that that guardian does automatically always get every month whatever they need for the standard care of the children. And that's without asking no questions asked. That just shows up in their account like a paycheck, you know, as an auto pay from the trustee. And then it's really just a conversation for those more major life events that the trustee needs to get involved in. You know, are we buying them a car? Are they going to do a study abroad? Are we going on a big family vacation? You know, some of those things are the things then where there there gets to be some dialogue to make sure that the trust money is being used wisely. Because a lot of times talking to young parents, one of their big priorities is education and making sure that when my kids do turn 18, there's enough money saved up in there for them to still go to college. And college costs, as you know, are going up and something that you really want to make sure are set aside for. So that's something that it's a balance on how much do we spend for the care and benefit of our kids while they're young versus how much do we try to save to make sure they can have their college paid for. And ideally, like I said, you have your plan set up and you have good insurances set up where you don't have to make a decision between one versus the other. And it's just a question more of prudent financial management because it's always nice, never hurts to have extra money at the end of the day where that kid can have some money to start off on their own, have down payment for a house, pay for a wedding, start a business, some of those things. So we highly encourage prudent use of your trust so that when those kids do become young adults, they might have some of those opportunities. And, you know, kids who have lost their parents, I believe strongly, you know, it's important to give them as many opportunities as possible and make sure that the rest of life goes for them as smoothly as it can because they are going to have those challenges from having grown up with people who aren't their parents, even if there is, you know, great love and affection in that situation. So it's something that is hard to think about and say, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm actually making a plan for the fact that I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to get to parent my kids until 18. So it's a it can be a very emotional process to think through those scenarios because you're building scenarios that you're not part of. And so that's where people are sometimes hesitant to have those conversations. But it's really something important that you just, you know, again, as a parent, you make yourself do because you love your kids. Yeah. And it's it's hard to think about that. And it's also so important to think about it when you are alive and healthy and well and can have those conversations. And what I gathered from that answer, Eric, is that there's not a right or wrong way. It's just weighing the pros and cons. And you went through so many scenarios there that I think our listeners will be able to put themselves in those situations and say, okay, how would I answer this one? How would I want our children to accept those funds when they get to be 18 or older? So that was really helpful there. And it was so hard. I remember when Colin and I were going through that, we did end up doing a split division between who takes the kids and who takes the money. But figuring out who took our kids, that was so difficult. And I know a few of our listeners mentioned that they feel like they just don't have a good a good option. So what are some of your recommendations there as they think through that specific part of the will? That's obviously the hardest part as parents is choosing those people. And that's exactly what I tell people when they have an initial consultation with me. As I said, you're going to be doing the hardest thing here in this whole plan. And that's making the choice of who are these two people or one person, who is that going to be? And then I should say too, is when you don't have choices, it's sometimes hard. We'll even say, well, 
tried to pick two people if you can so that you have one as your first choice and one as your second choice just in case life circumstances do change and the first one is no longer the best option. And for people who might not even have one good option, you know, that can be a daunting task. I encourage people to talk to those who are close to them. Usually, parents and siblings are, I'd say, the largest choices for guardians in for young families. But some people, because of their family circumstances or just living arrangements, don't have siblings or don't have parents who would be a good option for guardian. And then in that case, my biggest advice is to talk to your closest friends. And you don't even have to pose it as, will you be my guardian? Just pose it as, you know, what are you doing about this? And who did you decide? And how did you decide it? And just by starting that conversation, I think you'll find out that there are a lot of people in that boat. And then that's where it's a real opportunity to say, hey, look, we're best friends. We're both in this boat. Why aren't we taking each other's kids? And really, the only reason is because we never talked about it. And so it's it's just, again, having those tough conversations. They're not not easy to bring up, but something where I think once you start the conversation and once you get it going, it really does flow and make sense where if you can get, you know, get into that little bit of serious level of conversation, you'll find it is very important to your friends. They're probably having anxiety about the same types of decisions too. And so just kind of networking within your natural group of people that you are friends with and your natural associations is really, I think, the best thing to do then. Because yeah, there's no family members, of course, are always an option. But if that's not on the table, you know, it's really family members and friends because there's no no one outside of that that you can name. You know, some people we work with, it's like, oh, I'm going to set up this trust company to manage my assets. It's like, okay, you know, that that works fine for asset management. But you know, there's no company you can use to take care of your kids. (laughs) That's where you really have to draw on your friendships and And the biggest thing other than that, that I would say to people is the whole idea of, I don't have anyone to name, so I'm just not going to do it. Well, I always tell people, by not making a decision, you are making a decision. And, you know, one of the kind of things we say is, well, if, if you don't have a plan, well, the government has a plan for you. So there are things in motion that if you don't plan by what we call plan by design, you're going to get into planning by default. And, you know, the defaults in this area are not good because it simply involves, you know, appointing a guardian ad litem and they have to just try to determine, is there someone in your family that would be suited to take this child? Or or if not, then, you know, if you don't have anyone named, you know, worst case scenario, you're dealing with a, you know, foster situation and no one wants to have that kind of situation for their own kids. So it's really critical to, if you can make a decision, and even if it's not a perfect situation, it's certainly going to be a better situation than doing nothing. And so I I think that's the biggest thing to remember is we're all imperfect. Every situation is imperfect. And no matter what, even if we're dealing with, you know, picture the best situation out there, we're dealing with two parents who both died and kids who lost both their parents. We're certainly in this case, always dealing with an imperfect situation. So you don't have to feel like, oh, I need to find the perfect person. And this is, you know, this is going to work out perfectly. Because the bottom line is, we're planning for, again, a sad situation. It's never going to be perfect. And just taking that action, motivating yourself and doing what you can, that's going to be your best scenario every time. Yeah. And I think this is a difficult part of being a parent and being an adult is some of these conversations are not easy. 
one thing that came to my mind too is sometimes friends are like family. And so I wouldn't pick people out of obligation because they are your sibling. Like Drew and I really sat back and thought, what are our goals? What are our values as parents and who could best fit in in case we weren't there? So I know one question that we didn't plug into the interview, but it's coming to mind right now is people have trouble if them and their partner don't agree. Do you see that? Do you have anything you could say that might help? You know, maybe it's like put in choice A, choice B. I don't know how to get people over that hump because what's stopping them from doing this is that they simply do not agree on who should get their children. Yeah, that is a tough situation either way because, yeah, ultimately the way this is set up, both partners do need to agree. Mm -hmm. It's an issue of communication. And it's an issue of as much as possible trying to articulate to say, well, if I don't want your sister to be the guardian, let me say why I think she wouldn't be good. And let me say why I think my parents would be a better guardian or whatever the circumstance might be. It's really an issue of try to identify those issues in terms of if you can't agree, what is the source of that disagreement? What is the objection? And then that can be helpful where you can bring that up to your attorney and say, hey, we've talked about this. Here's what she thinks and why. Here's what he thinks and why. Can you help with figuring out this situation? And maybe it's something like, oh, you know, I like your sister, but I think she's really bad with money and she just spends it too freely. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe there is a solution then. Maybe we put my parents in charge of the money and your sister can be the guardian. And actually, I didn't have any problems with her taking the kids. I just thought she might make some bad decisions with their money. And so there's opportunity where if you try to find the source of that disagreement, maybe there's hurdles around it. And maybe too, just having that, you know, again, your attorney can't advocate for one of you over the other or tell one or the other of you that you're wrong, but they can help kind of be that neutral third party mediator to say, hey, let's get our feelings out on the table here. Let's figure out what each person thinks and why and see if there is some common ground where we can craft a solution here. That's the one nice thing, again, when you're working with an attorney versus working with legal Zoom. In the law, there's usually multiple different ways you can do things. And having someone who is familiar with the different potential designs and the different ways you could craft a plan is going to really help remove some of those roadblocks and offer you some options that, again, you know, maybe it wouldn't be his first choice. Maybe it wouldn't be her first choice. But if they're both happy with it in the end and both satisfied, you know, that's what we're going for. Again, maybe it's not perfect for both people or perfect for each person. But again, it's a plan that you both feel would ultimately meet your goals. And that's, again, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to design. Sounds like a lot of marriage conflict resolution. It's like you have to get articulate about what is really bothering you and state that it can't just be like, you know, I hate your sister. Like that's probably not going to be the most helpful, but saying, you know, here's a couple examples of a time where she hasn't done well with money. And that's where my concern is coming from. It's probably going to get you further down the road. But we totally understand a really difficult conversation, which brings us to our next difficult conversation is once we have picked these people, Eric, is it important to ask them? And is there anything else that we need to communicate with them aside from will they say yes to this request to take my children if I die? Yeah, I would say definitely ask them. You know, that's a, a first off is, you know, 
sometimes with this planning process, like I said, the lawyer is just going to ask you for a name and your job is to get that name. And there might not be a, a lot of guidance on, okay, well, how do I go about having that conversation? How do I go about making sure this person is okay with it. So yeah, the first and most basic thing is get consent of the person and make sure that they're okay with serving in that role. Yeah, you don't want to go and pay a lawyer to put some names in a form and then have it be people not be willing to fill those roles. But in my experience, I see that pretty rare when someone asks another person to be their guardian very rare that it gets turned down. So if there is some fear of, oh, well, what if I ask this person and they say no? Like I said, in my experience, it rarely happens. And also, in my experience, 100% of the time, even if that person does turn it down, they're completely honored and flattered that you would ask them that. And it's never going to be something where, oh, you're rejected. It's going to be, oh, I'm so honored that you asked me that. Unfortunately, we're going through some things in our life right now that, you know, we wouldn't be able to take on that extra responsibility, that type of thing. So always ask. And, you know, I always tell people try to make, you know, a special event of it, even if it's you just have them have your friends over for dinner and have a bottle of wine and just say, you know what, you know, I I know we already asked you and you already said yes, but we just wanted to thank you guys for agreeing to be our guardians and just kind of talk with you a little about that. And, you know, again, keeping it as light as possible. I know this conversation so far hasn't been that light, you know, for an early, early morning listen, but keep it on the side of, you know, our kids and your kids, they get along so great together and they love to be siblings. And, you know, that's kind of the picture that you're looking to say is, look, that would be a great family, a great support for the kids to have. And just make sure that everyone feels good about that situation and feels good about the idea of, in a sense, blending your family into their family and their kids with your kids and taking care of them. That is a big responsibility. And so that's something also that I always encourage people to think of when you're selecting a guardian is what is the present circumstances of those guardians? Are they single and no kids? Are they going to have kids in the future? Do they have kids right now? How would your kids interact with those kids? It's all things to think about. And it's a whole swirl of questions to think over. But but yeah, definitely have that nice dinner, have them over, get them a little thank you gift and just kind of celebrate the fact that they're going to be your guardians and that they're willing to do that for you. And like I said, a lot of times this ends up coming with reciprocity of, okay, well, then we want to ask you guys something as well. And you know, we want you to be our guardians. And it can be a really joyful moment of, you know, whether it's your friend, your family member, it's like, yeah, we're we're in this together. We've got each other's backs. If something happens to one of us, we're ride or die. We're taking care of each other's family. And so that's a really big deal. And that's, to me, something that should be celebrated rather than something that should be kind of pushed off and not talked about. And now a break from our sponsor, BetterHelp. In this episode, we are talking about some complex things, the idea of dying, the idea of having to have really hard conversations with our family. I know one of the reasons people have trouble future planning is they're afraid of what their family might think about who they pick to take care of their kids. I know that my therapist and I have had some really complex talks around these matters and the feeling of what if I'm disappointing someone, but I feel like this is the best decision for my family. So all of that to say is that there are so many reasons that you might want to or need to talk to a therapist and talking about things like dying, death, future planning might be one of them. 
at BetterHelp, it's awesome because they pair you with a trained professional within 24 hours. So help is really closer than you might think. You can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month and join the over 2 million people that use their services. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's such an honor being asked and it can be a little bit of a celebration, even though it's about something that is very serious and something you hope never happens. It can still bring you guys so much closer together when that promise is made to each other. Eric, for a second, I want to go back to an answer that you alluded to at the beginning when you talked about naming beneficiaries on your account. So when should a family consider setting up that trust versus having that will or beneficiaries named on the account? Yeah, great question. So When it comes to, again, just a little bit demystify will versus trust, when we talk about will versus trust, a lot of times in my industry, we're just talking about what platform are the parents using for their plan? Are they building it off of a will or are they building it off of a trust? Now, to be clear, regardless of which platform you choose for the parents, 100% of the time for parents with kids, we're recommending to have that sub-trust or that baby trust, that trust set up inside of the parent's plan, the trust for the children. So you're always going to have, again, if you're working with an attorney who is competent in what they're doing, you're always going to have a trust for your children built into that plan one way or the other. So then, you know, kind of the question, how I would frame what you asked is, well, how does the parent decide, should I just have a will or should I have a trust? And largely, that's going to definitely be more asset driven as opposed to, you know, the will is going to be everyone with children needs to have a will at minimum. But then, you know, maybe parents who are a little bit older or who have had a chance to build more wealth, or maybe they received an inheritance. But yeah, largely it's going to be if they have more assets. And sometimes the specific types of assets we look at is, do they have real estate? Do you have a vacation property or a rental property beyond your first home? Do you have a business? Does one of the two people in the couple own their own business? Because again, that's going to be a more complex asset that's going to require some additional planning and advisement. And then largely just in terms of investment accounts is, you know, do I have more investments? Like I said, did I start early and save hard and build up a nice nest egg in the market? Or did I receive an inheritance? And we're usually looking at people with those unique types of assets, the real estate or the business, or with just larger assets. And again, larger for a young person might be 250,000, might be 500,000. It's not like we're looking at doing this only for multimillionaires or anything like that. It's largely going to be circumstance driven as far as what's the whole big picture with my assets. And with the general idea that the bigger the picture, the more likely it is that that family would benefit from having a trust platform rather than a will platform on which to build their plan. You're doing such a good job of laying out all these different Mm -hmm. situations here. I'm just so glad that we're having this conversation. But I also know that our listeners are understanding how complex this is. And you've probably piqued their interest if they haven't already been looking at getting a will and a trust set up to start that process now. So let's talk through what that process looks like. We understand that the costs will vary based on where people live, but can you just give us a ballpark of what the startup costs are? And also, how can people find a good and trustworthy lawyer to get them started? Yeah. And I think I'll take that kind of with the second question first, which is because that's going to be, I think, the most critical part of the process is how do I find a good and trustworthy lawyer to do this? Because largely, obviously, 
I'm in the industry, but something that I highly, highly recommend is finding that good, trustworthy lawyer. And I will say that the typical places where people will find this is from another peer of theirs, Mm -hmm. whether it's, again, sibling, friend, someone who has been through the process and asking them for a personal referral. That's going to be a good place to start. Other great places to start if you don't have a personal connection that has done this is asking if you have anyone who provides you with financial advice on investments. They're a great resource because financial advisors are very well in touch with local attorneys and also even your insurance advisor, whoever you bought that life insurance policy from to protect your family. That's kind of the next big critical step is, okay, now I have this life insurance so that if I do pass away prematurely, I've got a nice nest egg for my children. Okay, well, how do I set that up properly? And that next step necessitates, okay, that's when I need the will and I need the connection to a good local attorney to set that up. And so the person who you bought that life insurance from ideally would also have proper connections to say, oh, this is the person that we send our clients to. So financial professionals, family members, those are going to be your best resources. If you're doing your own research and just you know hopping out there on Google and trying to find it, the biggest things I tell people to look for is, in general, you're going to be wanting to look for a small or medium-sized firm that actually specializes in estate planning. Because there's all kinds of different law firms out there. And again, people outside of the industry sometimes don't know this, but you know, there's what we call big law, which is the large law firms. And they're typically going to be working with corporations as their clients, ultra high net worth individuals. Quite frankly, they'll be very poorly suited to work with a regular middle-class family, especially a young middle-class family on setting up their plan. So that's something that our law firm, for example, has really tailored is we're six attorneys, but we specialize exclusively in estate law in Dane County here in Madison, where we are. We have five small offices all around the county. So we really get into the local communities and work with regular people and network. We have five young attorneys in their 20s and 30s. So we're out there with our natural market, with people our own age, getting out there, trying to be known that we're looking to work with you. And that's unique where in most industries, you say, hey, I'm the consumer. Of course, people are going to want to work with me. That's what's difficult in law is there's not a lot of law firms that are set up and well-suited to work with young families on an estate plan. So really try to find someone out there who does make it known that they want to work with you. So that's going to be sometimes a bit of a challenge with just Googling, but that's where the personal recommendations come in. So that's kind of how I would look at approaching the decision is trying to find that smaller firm that does have that specialization because they're going to very much more likely be set up to actually want to work with you. And then in terms of the cost and the process, again, like you said, it can vary greatly depending on the assets of the person what they're trying to accomplish. But for the most part, plans that we do, and again, I always tell people the way we try to set up our plans is to be top quality, but middle market pricing. So again, talking about shopping for this type of service might be very different than how you shop for other services where it's not going to be a scenario where you're going to go out and get three bids and try to take the lowest bid. And even if you're doing that type of comparison pricing... Price in this type of an area is not what you're going to want to have be the be-all, end-all. Usually, as again, especially in legal services, if you're going with the lowest price, you're probably going with someone who is not experienced and is trying to get the business and might not be 
established and well prepared to take care of your family. So that's something to certainly take with a huge grain of salt. It's also, like I said, quite possible that even getting three competitive bids is going to be difficult in your geographic region. So it's really going to be more about finding that one person or two people that you can compare and then seeing who you trust, who has good vibes with you in a consultation. Most attorneys in my industry will offer a no-charge initial consultation, something that we still do. And that's something where that's a huge opportunity for you to come in and get a little education on what the process specifically would be working with that individual attorney, but also just getting a feel for that attorney and feeling, are they honest? Are they going to take good care of my family? Is this something that they just started doing and they're dabbling in? Or is this something that they really do specialize in? So some kind of basics of what you want to find out is, you know, some of those criteria. But ultimately, is my attorney going to treat me with kindness? Are they going to treat me fairly? Like I said, do they actually want to work with me? Because as dumb as this sounds, don't work with someone who doesn't want to work with you. And so that's the biggest thing is, you know, make sure you have that consultation. You have a good feeling that yes, this attorney actually wants to do business with me. This isn't just something that he's doing for a favor and doesn't really want to do, but, you know, feels bad and is going to do it anyway. And that unfortunately, like I said, said, where if you're a wealth management estate attorney and you say, hey, I'm only working with high net worth clients, the only young families you might do plans for is kids of your ultra high net worth clients and you do it for them for a favor. But it's a big thing where you definitely want to find someone who actually has a design and has a process where they want to work with you. All that being said, I know one of your questions was pricing. And so for our pricing, it's unique because we don't do hourly pricing like some other attorneys do. We do package-based pricing or project-based pricing where we essentially assess your estate plan and are able to give you a fixed cost based on what you want to do. And again, with most project pricing, how it works with us is you pay half up front to commit to doing the plan. And then you pay half on completion once you're satisfied with all the work that we've done for you. And so that's something that is very comforting as a young person, especially if this is a budget thing or something that you have to save up for having that certainty of knowing exactly what it's going to cost, even if it is a major expense, you want to know this is the exact amount that I need to save up for. And this is when I need to make my two payments. So that's something that regardless of how high those payments are, the structure of it is very nice to know that that's how I'm going to be expected to pay. Because yeah, the one constant complaint I hear about other people from attorneys is, I talked to this attorney. I didn't even know I was going to be charged for things. And then I got an hourly bill sent to me in the mail for his time. And, you know, that's something that, again, when you're interviewing attorneys, make sure that you're very transparent first off is how are you charging me? And am I being charged for this conversation? <laughs> you know, and like I said, we never charge clients until they actually sign a contract with us. And then once they do sign a contract with us, they know exactly what they're going to pay to the dollar. So it's something that we feel very good about the way we do our pricing and our clients really appreciate the transparency and how we price things. All that being said, you know, we're not the cheapest people out there. We don't recommend you go with the cheapest person out there because one of the things that I think people might try to tend to do in this area is cut out various aspects of the plan to try to lower the budget. And I tell people, you know, we have package-based plans designed for a reason so that you don't have to cut out various components and that we're looking at a very comprehensive plan. And then that way we get good economies of scale for doing all the work that you need done. And when I say all the work, I mean helping you set up that will, set up that trust and guardianship inside the will, setting up the healthcare and financial powers of attorney for the couple. 
setting up even stuff like living wills and funeral directives. So we're incredibly comprehensive in saying, look, any decision relative to your estate, whether it's financial, whether it's care, whether it's incapacity, whether it's passing away, we're going to craft a package that covers all those decisions and we're going to give you all the legal documents for him and her to do this. And so sometimes people are surprised that, hey, even in a basic plan, you know, you end up with 10 to 15 documents. And they're like, oh, I thought this was just going to be one document and it was just a will. And that's, I think, one of the biggest surprises of people is the way our laws are written is every different type of decision, whether it's a medical decision, a financial decision, a will, a trust, all of those are splayed across a variety of legal documents. And so that's where, again, if you're trying to do it yourself and pick all these components and piece them together, it can be very difficult to try to figure out what's going on and what piece of the plan does what. But that's, again, where we say, hey, we've designed this. We've got everything put together for you that we know you're going to need. And we're going to give you a nice package price on that. For us, again, we're in Madison, Wisconsin, which has some higher cost of living than some surrounding areas. Our package pricing for a married couple, which would include all the work for both partners, is $2,500 is our target rate for that. Again, it can vary one way or the other depending on your situation, but that's roughly what you'd be looking at for the quality and the process, like with my firm, what I was just describing. Are there people out there that would do it cheaper? There definitely are. But in my experience, I have not seen anyone with a lower rate that would give you the quality that we're discussing here today. I remember when we were in our final signing and all of a sudden we're talking about if we wanted to be buried or cremated and all the decisions were made right there. So it's definitely comprehensive. Let's take a quick break from our podcast partner, Viore. Viore has a crazy name, but their clothes have quickly become go-tos in Amy and my closets. Guys, one of the products that we want to bring up is the Halo line. So the Halo line, they have several different tops. One is the Halo Performance hoodie. For those who like a zip-up, this one is where it's at. The pockets are in the perfect spot. The hood is just right. It is so cozy. It is so soft. And I mean, I have it in three colors, so you know that it's one of my favorites. I also have my eye on the Halo Essential. So Amy has this in a really pretty green color. And every time she wears it, I'm like, gosh, why haven't I added that to my Viore order yet? So between those two, you could be pretty well set for fall and just know that they're known for their joggers. So I'm actually wearing the Weekender joggers right now. It's the only joggers that I feel like I can wear outside of the house and not look like I'm wearing pajamas. For people who aren't comfortable with joggers, you know exactly what I mean. And Viore has made it so possible to wear these and feel so stylish, so pulled together at the exact same time. So if you go to vioriclothing.com slash herself, you can get 20% off your first order. Again, that's vioriclothing, V-U-O-R-I.com slash herself. Now back to our show. So I remember though, when Drew and I had our very first meeting with you and there was some pre-work to do before we had that meeting. So I know you were pretty impressed with Drew's organization. And one question that came in is how can people start to prepare for their initial meeting and what conversations are important to start if you are part of a married couple before a meeting like this? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I was very impressed with Drew. He really uh, had all the finances nailed down to a T and all well documented. And that as an attorney is very helpful for us because then when I say, you know, tell me about your finances and give me the big picture and you say, here's the big picture right here. 
for us, that's ideal. Now, again, not everyone is going to have that level of aptitude and that's not what's required. But that is one of the things is just generally organize your assets and figure out what you have, especially when it comes to life insurance. I'll experience a lot of times in my initial consultation, asking couples if they have life insurance and they don't really know. They say, well, maybe I have it. I think I have that through my employer. I don't know how much it is. And again, you know, that's something that you definitely want to nail down when you're doing this estate planning process, because what it comes down to and what I help people conceptualize is, again, we're creating this plan for if you're not here. So it's quite possible one of those significant assets is going to be your life insurance. And we're wanting to say, okay, knowing that we have this pot of money for your kids might be a couple million dollars if you have life insurance, even if you don't have significant assets. And so that really informs our decisions of how we're going to set things up. So having that knowledge of your financial situation is critical, particularly life insurance. If you don't have it, go out and get it. It's definitely something that plenty of people out there... I don't sell life insurance, even though it may sound like it. Um, <laughs> but there's plenty of people out there that would be happy to you know, set you up with insurance and just make sure that you're clear on what you want. And I'm after death benefit. I'm after low cost. And you know those sorts of things, just let your whoever you're working with know what you're looking for. But that shouldn't be an obstacle is getting that insurance in place because that's going to be very critical. And then once you have the insurance in place, once you know what you have for your assets, that really puts together the asset component of the plan. And then in terms of the family component of the plan, it's the same stuff we've been talking about earlier on as far as do have those conversations about guardian and trustee. Because if there is that disagreement, we don't want to find that out at the initial consultation. We want to, we want to mm. know going into it, okay, this is what we've talked about. Maybe we're not sure yet, but here's a couple of the options that we put out on the table. Because at that initial consultation, then it really gives me the opportunity to say, okay, well, that's great. Let me help explain how it works with the trustee and with the guardian. And how would you envision that working with the people that you've told me you have as the possible selections? It really enables that initial consultation to actually get into design of your plan rather than just the attorney explaining his process and selling his services. It can actually be a topic where you can learn and get educated on, okay, this is what I would need to know to move forward. And that's the goal of every initial consultation I have is not necessarily to sell a plan, but to say, hey, if you were going to have a plan and move forward, what are the decision points that we would need to decide to move forward with this? And that's what we as the professional can help you decide. But as much of the information about what you're deciding and what you're evaluating, as much of that as you do among yourselves ahead of time, it's going to get you farther down the field and closer to where you want to be. Yeah, this is the time we're channeling your inner Drew Kiefer a little yeah. bit beforehand with the homework can go a long way in those initial discussions. We had so many really good questions come in for you, and one was on a co-parenting situation. So does this impact anything about the process of how you're actually going to create that will? For instance, if the other parent shares custody, would the child automatically stay with the other parent in the case of death? Yeah, that's a very good point. And the co-parenting situations are tricky. And so most of the situations that I see, it's a situation of, yes, if one parent passed, the other co-parent would be largely assumed to be the guardian and take things over. Now, I've had a few situations where the parent who was making the will with me has virtually sole custody in terms of placement, but the other parent is still in the picture. And I've had situations where they've said, I don't want them going and living with my ex because of X, Y, or Z. 
And in those situations, the best thing we can do is document that in their will, that that's what their desire is. There's obviously no guarantees because parental rights are a very tricky situation and parents do still have their rights. But by documenting that in your will, it's giving you the opportunity to say, hey, if I do pass away, that guardian ad litem or the court that is evaluating who should take my kids they'd be able to have the evidence from me that, oh, my ex wasn't a fit guardian because of X, Y, or Z, and my parents actually should take my kids in that event. That would be something, again, a court would have to decide, but it'd be important to document. Now, for the more standard situation, which I would say is that the other co-parent is fit, and if you passed away, they would end up being the guardian. The biggest thing to do in that situation is to make sure absolutely that you have a plan set up with a will or trust platform, but there should be the minor's trust created. Because in that instance, nine times out of 10 or more, the client I'm working with would say, even though my ex is going to be the guardian, I don't want them to be the trustee. I don't want them to manage all of my money. Mm -hmm. I want that to be my sister or I want that to be my mom or dad. So to do that, you absolutely need to have the trust created under your will, and you need to have that trustee nominated to be the sister or the parent. And that would absolutely be respected by the court. There's no question there as far as you're always allowed to say who manages your money. Like I said, the guardian thing, that's going to be determined by a court deciding what's in the child's best interest. But in terms of how the money is managed for your child, It's your money, it's your child, and you're allowed to say whatever you want. The important thing is that you say that and that you put that in writing in a will and that your beneficiaries go into the will. I know one of the things when Amy and I were talking about this podcast, she said is, you know, it's interesting to hear some real stories that you've seen where either things went right or things went wrong. And one of the things that we saw at one time involving creating that trust, naming the beneficiaries, one of the not great cases that we had to get involved in was a single woman who had passed away. So she didn't have, there wasn't a co-parent. There was no one in the picture basically to take the kids and be their guardian and trustee. But what she went ahead and did is she didn't make a will, but she went ahead and named her brother as the beneficiary on all of her life insurance. And they just had their own understanding. They did have a conversation and say, hey, I want you to use this money and take care of my kids with it. So that was understood, but it wasn't legal. He was legally the owner of that money. And so this isn't the situation of the bad brother. The brother was actually trying to help use that money to take care of the kids. But before he could do anything, a friend, quote unquote, of this woman went and sued for custody of the kids and sued for taking control of the money from that uncle. And ultimately, it came down to find out that this woman was barely even a friend with the deceased woman and that she was just after the money. And that had to all be wound out in a long legal battle. Again, sad situation where this woman was, in a sense, trying to create a trust and name her brother as the trustee, but she didn't actually set up those proper legal parameters to do that. And so it was something then that you have to have to get into a court battle over. Just another example of, okay, if if you don't do these things, and it's always, you know, it impacts people worse if they're single parents, if they're divorced, if they have blended families. Those are the situations where naming beneficiaries gets a lot more tricky because there's different legal defaults for all of those situations as opposed to your standard nuclear family, common kids, common parents. 
And, you know, in this day and age, I say that standard, half of the families out there now are blended families. So it's something that it's very important that these conversations occur and that you have a plan by design. Yeah, that's one thing we talked about when we were in is a lot of people assume that their families will do the right thing. And we hope that they do. But even if you've told your whole family, you know, we want Michelle to take our kids, if there's nothing in place, that might not happen. And so that was one of the big reasons we wanted to do this entire episode is to understand that the way that you hope things will go versus if you plan the way that things absolutely will go, that's two different things. So another question that came in is, are there any common pitfalls or things that get overlooked that you see when it comes to planning? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest pitfall, like we've been talking about, is just not doing anything and just having that decision paralysis. Because as I've said, by not doing a plan, you have a plan. And so another example of this is we saw a young beneficiary who lost her parent. And this was a situation where there was no plan in place to delay distributions. And so you're dealing with an 18-year-old who is coming into their full inheritance on their 18th birthday. And this particular young woman was a great young girl, but just again, lacked guidance because there was lost her parents and there was no system set up for her. What actually ended up happening is she went out, bought a brand new fancy car in cash, didn't get insurance on it, went and crashed it, totaled the vehicle. She was all right, luckily, went out and bought another brand new vehicle. And then someone told her she should enroll in college, luckily, which was good advice. But then she basically went in college, enrolled, never showed up and didn't notify anyone until after the time for refund. So she spent a whole semester's worth of tuition that she didn't even go to. So, I mean, it's 18-year-olds, you're going to be in a tough spot to manage your own money regardless. But then when you say you're an 18-year-old who's lost both your parents, it's almost just a recipe for disaster. And so that's why it's so critical to have these trusts set up. And that's one of the interesting legal nuances is your guardian technically only goes through age 18 And then that kid can say, I'm out the door. I've got all my money. I'm leaving. And to an 18-year-old, you know, if they have a couple hundred thousand dollars, they think that's going to last them the rest of their life. And then they find out that they ran through that in a matter of months. So it's something that the trust is so critical because it can delay those distributions. And one of the common ways we might do that is to say, hey, instead of one strike, one chance at 18, we say, let's give them three strikes And instead of doing it at 18, let's delay those distributions to 25, 30, you know, even 35, where it's like you get a third of it at each of those big life milestones. And then they are much more likely to say, hey, yes, this is going to be used for education because I can't just take all the money and party. I'm going to actually, you know, go to college. And then, you know, like I said, once they graduate, they'll have money for buying a house or starting up their own life. And so that's where we're a huge advocate of actually setting up that trust. So that's one of the big pitfalls we see is just not having that trust set up for the kids and just relying on guardianship till 18. That's a big one. The other one I guess we see that's a big common mistake is not updating your plan. Meaning, okay, I went and had a plan, but I didn't change it once I had new life circumstances. So one case we had of this recently was we had a relatively young lady who had a daughter who was a teenager, and she had that with a 
earlier relationship, that gentleman actually passed away. She was a single parent for a while with a teenager. She ultimately ended up marrying another gentleman and then had a kid with that man. And so basically, she had your standard blended family. I've got my teenage daughter from my prior relationship, and we've got our new son that we had together. And the issue here was is she had done a plan that set up guardianship and trust for her first daughter when that daughter was little, back when she was with her husband who was now passed. And that was the will that she had as of the date of her death. And Mm -hmm. so she didn't update it when she got married. She didn't update it when she had her second child. And so then we ended up in a extremely complex legal situation because there's different laws about if you fail to update your plan and then get remarried and if you fail to update your plan and have a child and you basically end up with these web of interacting laws and you again have a court battle trying to decide and it's between baby stepson, teenage daughter and stepdad and we're trying to decide who gets this woman's estate. It's just not a comfortable situation for anyone and for those relationships that are at play there. It would have been leaps and bounds better for that woman to have sat down with her husband and said, hey, now we have these two kids. We need to talk about how are our assets going to go if something happens. And there just never was that conversation. We're dealing with a will that is completely not correct for the life circumstances. And then it's up to a court and lawyers to sort that out. And when you're in a process like that, everyone's got to get their own lawyer to protect their own interests. And then you've got three different people who are family with each of their own three lawyers and with a judge and with a guardian ad litem. So you've got up to five lawyers trying to decide the fate of these women's assets when she could have decided it for herself on a will. So something that is critical is your plan is your plan. And ideally, you're working with an attorney that's going to make it as future proof as possible. But it can't plan for unexpected events like, oh, I did lose my spouse. And then I got remarried. And then I had another kid. You know, any of those are events. We always tell people the big, the big events at which you want to update your plan are deaths, divorce, or birth. Any of those events are reasons to say, Hey, I better look at my plan and make sure it's still correct. And if you have multiple of those events and have no update, then, you know, you're going to be in an interesting situation and not interesting in a good way. I told Drew and I had that story and had that advice. And we decided that if one of us dies, the other has to get a prenup before they get remarried. And I told Drew I was going to haunt him if he didn't do that. So he is going to be sure to do that. And I would too, just with our situation. Another question that did come in is, are these easy to amend? Okay, you just kind of told us worst case scenario. Are these easy to amend? And is there anything we can do to future proof them so we can kind of save ourselves from needing so many amendments? Yeah, great question. And again, something you want to be informed about when you're working with a lawyer is, okay, what is my future obligations to update this? And what are my potential costs for doing that and so forth? So one of the things, again, we specialize in working with young families. So we are experts at crafting the legal language in our documents to make sure that they're as future-proof as possible. One example of this is when we're talking about families with young kids, one of the things that we put in there is we always make sure that 
we identify the existing children by name because that's always important for the families. You know, I, I cringe when I just see something that says my children because it's like, well, what does my children mean? When you're a lawyer, you know, you can fight about anything as simple as that. So I always encourage people, we do want to name your children by name and put their names in the document. But we definitely want to have a provision in there that says, look, if this couple adopts any children in the future, or if they give birth and have more children in the future, that those children are automatically included within this class of people, and it doesn't require an amendment. So even something as simple as that, if you're careful with the way you craft your language, and again, this is kind of a legal Zoom versus a state specialist attorney difference, if you craft your language properly, it's going to be a lot less likely that you're going to need to amend it in the future. And again, when it comes down to making those decisions of guardian and trustee, as well as power of attorney for finance and healthcare, who would make key decisions for you, as well as who would make key decisions for your kids. The biggest, best thing you can do to future-proof your plan in that way is to have those multiple layers of people. So this is where I was mentioning earlier, if you can, don't just name one guardian or one trustee, name a first choice and a second choice. Because then again, that way, you don't have to go in and amend your plan because, okay, we were counting on this one couple and they moved overseas. And so now we can't use them anymore and our whole will plan doesn't make sense. So having those backups is also just a very good way to future-proof it. Again, it's kind of part of the adage of, you know, you get out of something what you put into it. If you just put in and say, hey, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. Well, again, that's going to make your plan not as future proof. But if you say, hey, I'm going to go that extra mile and I'm going to even have the conversation of not just the contingency about what if I pass, but also what if I pass and then that person I selected wasn't the best person at that point in time. Well, then who's my next choice? Again, depending on how far down you're willing to drill and have those conversations, you'll get a better outcome on your plan in terms of future proofing. We always encourage people to review every five years is kind of our industry standard. Realistically, in practice, we see it end up being more like 10 that people are actually making changes. But five is a good time to say, hey, I did this five years ago. Let's look at it and see if it still makes sense for today's circumstances. And again, with our law firm, again, this is how we charge. A lot of lawyers are on the basis of if you ask me to look at anything, I'm going to charge you for my time and I'm going to bill you hourly for it. We're on the basis of if you're a current client and you want your current plan reviewed, the review is no charge. And we were always happy to talk to you about your current plan and your current circumstances and do those still match up. That being said, if there are changes then and say, oh, these do no longer match up and I need changes, well, then you do pay a change fee to update your documents. And again, that's going to largely vary based on what change you want to make. But the key part there is you're not paying an annual fee to maintain your documents. We generally think that's not a good investment if that's offered to you as far as you know having an annual fee associated with your plan. And then, like I said, you're designing a plan to be as future-proof as possible. If you have questions about whether it's still valid, your attorney is answering those questions for you at no charge as opposed to at an hourly rate. And again, people are always shocked by hourly rates of attorneys. And it is because so many attorneys are driven by that billable hour, the rates are very high. Even, you know, just to give you guys an example, in Dane County, with a small law firm, I tell people you're usually going to be looking at a three to $400 an hour attorney rate. My rate's $375 for, for private hourly consulting that I do. But you deal with the big law firms I was mentioning, the ones that want to work with corporate clients, you're going to see double that. You're going to see rates in the seven, eight, nine hundreds. And again, for a family to hire someone like that, 
just doesn't even make any sense, especially when it's the premise of if you ever call and speak to me or if you ever send me an email. email. I get charged for charged. emails. I was like, what? I didn't know that. Yeah. I take that back. <laughs> Don't yeah. build that one. Yeah. It just, I mean, just the whole idea of shopping for legal services, there's not a lot of education out there on how do I interact with a lawyer and it's a very unequal power dynamic where the lawyer has all the power. They have the information you want. And they say, I'm the gatekeeper to this. You're not going to get access to it unless you pay me. Again, it's a different philosophy than we use because I'm out here. I'm wanting people to be educated and empowered because I believe the more people know and are educated, if you're selling appropriate solutions to them, the more they're empowered to know about what they might be buying from you, the better it is for you and the better it is for them. So something I believe very highly in is taking that veil away and making it clear and transparent about what am I shopping for and why and how am I being charged so that you can make that informed decision as a consumer. And Eric, as you were going through all those pieces, it made me sweat a little bit because I know that we established ours when I was pregnant with our third son, Owen. We finalized things when he was born, but I don't even know if we have a secondary on there. I know exactly who our first people are, but I got to double check. So that's something I'm going to look at after this. But bringing up Owen, I know there's some people in our audience who have a child with a disability, and it makes a difference when you're looking at these wills and trusts. And our third son, he was born with Down syndrome, and we have a special needs trust set up for him. So we would love if you would just talk through some of your recommendations if you do have a child with special needs. Yeah, that's a very great point, Abby. The point is exactly what you said, is that if you do have that child with special needs, that does require special legal planning. And so it's hard for families in those circumstances because there's already so many challenges financially, physically, emotionally. And then to say, okay, well, you also need separate additional legal planning. You know, it's sometimes, oh, that's another, another slap in the face. But the reason why that is, is because if you were to give a child with special needs a standard inheritance trust, it would actually interfere with either government benefits they're currently receiving or could potentially receive as adults. And again, that's just the way the laws are written is that, as you can imagine, anyone who's ever worked with achieving disability benefits from the government, they don't make that an easy process. And even people who already have those benefits, the government is looking for ways to not have to continue to support that person. And if the government is able to say, you received an inheritance, you can privately support yourself, you know, that will be a reason why they will remove your benefits. And so that's something where if you do work with exactly what you mentioned, Abby, a special needs trust, it's actually a discretionary trust that's written according to those statutes regarding special needs and disability and what special language has to be in there about no mandatory distributions, trustees, sole discretion, use of the funds for what we call supplemental needs that it's not to be used as a primary source of support. Because again, if the government says you have a primary source of support, they'll say, okay, rely on that then and not on our benefits and you're done. So it's very key that you do work with an attorney who specializes in working with individuals with special needs if you do have that situation with your child. And again, this is something that just like the standard inheritance trust that we were talking about setting up for the kids with the 25, 30, 35 and that type of stuff. This trust can be built into any type of plan. It can be built into your will. It can be built into your trust. But 
the key point is, is you're definitely going to want to build it in there. And then even more so with children with special needs, really making sure that once you set up that trust, your beneficiaries are getting directed into it. Because not only are you in a standard situation, you're dealing with an 18-year-old receiving all their money. If you're dealing with an 18-year-old who has special needs, not only are you dealing with them receiving all their money, you're also dealing with them losing all their government benefits at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the stakes are much higher. And again, that's hopefully gives you a good reason why there's some expanded legal planning that would be necessary if you have children with special needs and definitely something to consult with your attorney about and make sure that your inheritances are set up for them in that special way. Eric, we have learned so much from you. I learned so much while working with you. I had fun threatening Drew in front of you. Like we just really got to know each other, got to, it wasn't as bad as probably all of this sounds, if that makes sense. Like we really feel good that we have things set up. So I hope that this encouraged some of you to get yourselves set up. Please let everyone know where they can find more of you. Yeah, I'm always happy to reach out or happy to have people reach out to me and happy to provide additional education, even if that's I just want more information, even if it's I want to have a quick phone call to discuss my situation. Like I said, you're never going to be charged just to call us. You're only charged once you and I come to an agreement of a contract. So always reach out to me. So we're on the web at www.dfgrams.com. And our firm is called Grams and Christofferson. So that's the reason for DF Grams. I didn't get to share this in my story, but Grams was my mentor. And actually, kind of how I got into the practice of law is as a second generation owner of this firm. And so that's something that, you know, I'm very proud of is being with a well established firm, but also being with a firm that has young people poised to take on the next generation and poised to work with young families. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at, at GC Estate Law. So at GC Estate Law. And you can email our office if you want to have a specific question or specific consultation at info at dfgrams.com. And grams is spelled G-R-A-M-S. Any of those ways, it's okay to reach out to us. We're going to be now starting up a YouTube channel. We've got a few videos out there where you can just get to know our firm and our attorneys. So we just have some introductory videos out there right now. But if you're interested in learning more about us and about how we do our process, you know, definitely can check us out on YouTube. And then hopefully we get some more content up there soon on some of the topics we've been talking about today. Well, thank you, Eric. And we'll make sure to include those in the notes section just to make it that much easier for people to start these hard conversations and to actually get going on the information that we need to have. So thank you for that today. And let this be your encouragement to have those conversations with your significant others, with your family members. Reach out to the people that you need to. And thank you again, Eric, for being here today. 